You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. And I'm joined today by Scott LaFoy, a producer for the Arms Control Wonk podcast that some listeners of The Diplomats Podcast may recall because we recently did a collaboration episode together. So uh, how are you doing today, Scott? Thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me. I was doing a little better before someone went and shot off a missile like right over Japan. So was I. Yeah, I was on my uh, train home. So uh, that was fun. I was uh, firing off a bunch of tweets trying to track things um, on my mobile. And suddenly I'd use a South Korean phone, which I feel is pretty appropriate (laughs) to track North Korean missile launches. Um, But yeah, so this podcast is a little bit of an emergency podcast. Um, We're recording it about, um, I think, 80 minutes, maybe 60 minutes after North Korea was confirmed by Japan's NHK to have launched a ballistic missile. And um, this has been an interesting launch since uh, we now have confirmation that North Korea has overflown Uh, the northern Japanese island of Hokkaido, where the United States and Japan were conducting a military exercise. Um, But more notably, this is the first time they've overflown Japan with a system that they've identified or that we've identified as a ballistic missile. They did it in 2009 with a satellite launch vehicle, the Yonha-3, that test failed. And more notably, they did it in 1998 with the Taipo-Dong-1, which was kind of the birth of uh, Japanese missile defense as we know it today, um, but Mm. really kind of, you know, freaked everyone out, and it led to uh, eventually a moratorium on their missile testing um, for a while. But this test, I think um, a lot of us uh, may have seen it coming. I wrote an article for The Diplomat where I kind of talked about why North Korea would think about doing tests like this um, again or, or you know, begin to do them with ballistic missiles. They get certain kinds of technical information that they can't get otherwise. Uh, but yeah, Scott, you want to walk us through the public data that we have on this missile so far? Uh, yes. So first off, I believe the the indication now is that the launch happened at about 5.57 or 5.58, depending on your source. Um, local time, well, I guess South Korea and Japan time, I guess that's 30 minutes off of local time DPRK now. Mm-hmm. Um, but about 5.57, uh, Japan, uh, local time Japan, flew for about 14 minutes, uh, flew for about 2,700 kilometers, reached an apogee of about 500, 500 kilometers. 550 kilometers, meaning that it was not a lofted test, uh, so it's breaking from their current testing regime, um, and overflew uh, Cape Erimo, which I'm not terribly familiar with, but is part of the uh, Hokkaido Island, um, and basically splashed down, uh, I believe it was 1,150 kilometers off of that, is what the uh, number's been cited as, and there seems to be a little confusion still lingering about whether or not it was one missile or three missiles, though I believe it is now settling on one missile as uh, news agencies revise their estimates and government folks talk to their media friends, so... Right, and you know, that's a disclaimer for this whole podcast. We are recording an hour after launch. Some of these numbers might end up seeing revision as uh, more data comes out. Early information about ballistic missile launches can be wrong, as we just saw a few days ago, actually, with the launch on Saturday when there was uh, all sorts of conversation over the weekend about whether North Korea tested a ballistic missile, a uh, rocket artillery system. Um, They did test a ballistic missile in the end. But anyways, uh, let's talk about this launch a bit more, Scott. Uh, So first of all, I guess uh, the range that they demonstrated uh, is a little bit short of reaching Guam, uh, which I think is worth pointing out since there was all this talk in August about North Korea potentially carrying out this test, uh, striking the waters near Guam with a bracketing strike. Uh, They haven't done that. Um, And this trajectory that we're seeing um, is sort of 
somewhere out of the blue, I mean, they never really suggested that they would look to strike the waters in the Northern Pacific, for example. So that's, again, interesting. And also just the gap between their most recent launch on Saturday um, and, and this ballistic missile launch is also notable. Both are provocative events. Both are missile launches. And this year, they've been launching at about a pace of maybe every 12 to 13 days, I think. So seeing two launches so close together after a uh, relatively long break, actually, since their July 28th launch of the Hwasong-14 ICBM um, that we talked about quite a bit on the collaborative podcast. Um, so let's talk a bit about missile defense. Um, so it seems like we haven't seen any reports that Japan or the United States attempted to intercept the missile. Um and I guess the only systems that would be of use here would be the Aegis destroyers that both countries have in the Sea of Japan that have SM-3 interceptors that are capable of exo-atmospheric intercept in mid-course. Um, but there's some questions about the geometry there. Uh, it would depend on when the ballistic missile enters mid-course to let the SM-3 actually engage at a given altitude. I know there were some questions about that in the case of Guam. Um, what's your read on this? Um, you know, I mean, the the missile defense scenario obviously has its risks. Uh, if you shoot and you miss, you're obviously giving up quite a bit of credibility. North Korea gets data about the quality of your systems potentially. Um, but what's your read on why um, we haven't really seen intercept yet? Uh, I'm... I think there's a there is a credibility problem, as you said. Uh, there's also a practical geometry problem. Um, it seems that the U.S. may have had some heads up about this missile launch, yeah, so I can talk about there that wouldn't be much of an excuse not to send uh, either Arleigh Burks or Congo-class destroyers into the line somewhere if they projected this trajectory, which actually could be an issue um, if they. If they felt that there was a Hwasong-12 launch coming up, they actually could have prepped their destroyers, but being a trajectory that hasn't been recently um, used, that is one overflying Japan recently, they may not have actually prepped for this specific trajectory. Right. And the SM-3 uh, does have a pretty pretty large range and uh, envelope that it can engage in, but it's still, I mean, like you said, the geometry matters. It still needs to be... Uh, only so far off from the trajectory, and if it wasn't, they can't. They can't do it. Um, right. And I'm I not guess, actually um... sure who could see <laughs> a failed SM3 flight. Um, we definitely would. The Japanese definitely would. The South Koreans could, but I'm not actually sure who in that area is actively um, patrolling the Sea of Japan slash East Sea with air defense radars sensitive enough to actually pick up the SM-3. So I would be curious if there could be intercept attempts that were not seen by anybody. Possibly. Um, but that starts getting into radar black magic, uh, and it's harder harder <laughs> to guess. Yeah, I mean, uh, PLAN might be in the area. They've recently had auxiliary auxiliary general intelligence ships. Uh, one actually oh, passed right. the Sugaru Strait, so that would be interesting. The Russians Absolutely. worry about the SM-3, but... Uh, you know, we've talked about the Russians' um, early warning and radar problems in, over the Sea of Japan before. Um, oh, yeah. And I, I don't think, it, think that, yeah. that specific radar, I don't actually think, can see SM-3 because oh, no. they're so small. Yeah. But again, not 100% on that. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, if they're missing ICBM second stages, they're probably not seeing <laughs> SM-3s. Um, but I think it's also worth pointing out that the United States and Japan each have different political and credibility considerations. I think Japan had publicly come out and said that they would shoot down any any uh, projectiles that directly threaten Japanese territory. And that's a little tricky with a missile overflying your territory. They, you know, Japan does this whole thing where they trot out the Pac-3 interceptors every time. And a lot of reports think that Pac-3s are somehow omnipotent against ballistic <laughs> missiles, but they're really not, um, especially against an IRBM overflying Japan. A Pac-3 can't do anything unless the missile were to break up 
above Japan in just the right place and debris would fall down. Then the Pac-3s might be able to take a few shots to prevent um, that debris from impacting if it didn't disintegrate um, during right. re-entry in the first place. Um, but yeah, otherwise it's really the SM-3s in the Sea of Japan. But there's good reason to think the Congos might not be actually um, poised to intercept these targets. They might be training right. for trajectories that are aimed at Japanese territory. For the United States Navy, I think it's a different calculus altogether because their allied reassurance commitments there. Um, if you let North Korea shoot ballistic missiles over your allies' territory, that really doesn't help your credibility. And, you know, I think there's ways to make up for that. I think maybe some people have made a little bit too much of that. And, you know, there's ways that the United States can react after this launch with Japan that might be productive in that sense. Um, but that, again, is a tricky question. Um, let me talk a bit also about just the, uh, you know, what the United States knew about this launch before it happened. I've written yes, a few please. articles about this. Um, uh, regarding previous launches, notably of the two um, Hwasong-14 ICBM launches. But it was actually interesting. I was um, I was speaking to um, sources that I uh, cannot name, obviously, who are um, within the U.S. government, have knowledge of the latest intelligence about um, North Korea and other countries' ballistic missile programs. And um, I was inquiring about Saturday's launch, um, about the, uh, you know, the question of what North Korea had launched. And I actually just uh, received a tip that uh, to expect a, um, a KN-17 launch specifically. Um, this was hours before North Korea actually fired this missile. So the United States had some warning. They weren't caught off guard here. So um, right. I think your point about missile defense, again, I think um, you know should take that into consideration. If you're expecting a launch, you can perhaps anticipate the geometry, um, even if you don't have specific data uh, from North Korea about what they're, uh, what they're planning on actually striking. Um, but all right, so we're about at the ten minute mark, Scott. But any other uh, any other thoughts about this launch before we, uh, you know, look to wrap up this emergency podcast? Yeah, just a quick thing. Do you think it was? Uh, what do you think's up with that whole reentry debris thing? There was a bunch of reports early on saying it was three missiles launched, which were then uh, sort of replaced by reports saying it was probably one missile mm -hmm. um, and something else that made it look like three missiles. You got any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I mean, do. my Twitter mentions were sort of blowing up with Mervs, decoys, all oh sorts God. of things that would be, I mean, you know, that would be really crazy if it happened. I don't think it's likely. Uh, North Korea hasn't made claims that they're looking into kind of any of these, um, or they're not looking at Mervs. They have made claims about decoys um, right. and penetration um, aids. But, um, you know, I think, I think it's not too likely that they launch multiple projectiles. I mean, especially because they usually tend to do salvo launches with missiles that they've declared to be operational. The Hwasong-12 is still developmental, and they tend to do single launches when they're still developing a missile. They're right. you know, calculating telemetry data. And that actually raises a point. It's like, I'm wondering you know, how they're going to collect any telemetry data from the actual um, terminal stages of this flight. I mean, if they're interested in, in surveying the performance of their reentry vehicle, um, they're they're going to be a little hamstrung, um, I think, by their ISR capabilities, <laughs> right? So uh, do you have Absolutely. any thoughts on that? I mean, do you think they s surreptitiously sailed a, you know, some kind of ship out there to collect data on this? I mean, I don't, I don't know anything about that, but I mean, that's a question that I've always had about these full range flights that North Korea has been considering. Just how would they get data? Indeed, they don't really have the infrastructure necessary to support this unless they have some sort of ship out there, either, uh, you know, snooping and looking for telemetry which they uh i'm actually not 100 percent sure the capabilities of their intelligence ships and electronic ships so i'm not sure they actually have that ability but mm -hmm. you know they may um the pla or the plan the 
the KPA Navy is not known for its uh, high-level equipment, but is still something to be watched for. Um, but in China's case, when they were testing their uh, DF-5 ICBMs, they had a, I think they called it a soft landing, um, where they there was an ejected sort of telemetry cassette mm-hmm. that would be uh, just shot out of the RV before impact, before everything disintegrates and explodes, um, that then ships could come and uh, pick up. But that would once again require a presence of either at least DPRK fishing boats out there or what are just would be disguised as fishing boats right. uh, out there. And uh, that's something we don't have any data on right now. Um, I'm personally curious if this uh, these reports of debris and whatnot or re- these false reports of, of two missiles indicates that uh, the missile broke up early. Uh, Ankit, do you have any idea if this was... Um, aimed at 2700 kilometers or if it simply splashed down at 2700 kilometers do you uh, have any idea on the no those? i mean uh no empirical data either way um if i had to okay. guess i think i mean there's a variety of factors that could explain the range it's actually interesting mm-hmm. because um based on the observed flight of the first successful Hwasong 12 launch back in may um, David Wright had calculated a minimum energy trajectory that showed a a longer total range, right? So North right. Korea cut the range considerably here. There's or, various reasons, or or it failed, right? I mean, they could exactly. have yeah, they could have cut the engine early. They could have used a larger dummy payload. They've been talking about a large size heavy payload for a while now. They that could they be. Have. I'm bumping that up. Um, some people have been talking about a depressed trajectory. I don't think that's too likely, especially for a developmental test of full range, especially the first one. No, same. Um, yeah, and, you know, I mean, there is valuable data for them to gain here that uh, the kinds of stresses that the RV experiences on a trajectory like this uh, to near full range are going to be very different from what they get from those uh, crazy lofted flights they do over the Sea of Japan. I think the Hwasong. 12 had reached what 2100 kilometers apogee Something back like in may that. that sounds right to me um i think it was like 2111.5 i'll go check my memory on that after this podcast but i think that's right um but yeah so i mean it doesn't surprise me that they started doing this and you know i guess the closing note here is that a lot is going to depend on how the united states and japan react here i mean in 1998 um kim jong-il was kind of spooked by the reaction i mean spooked in the sense that he agreed to um, a missile launch moratorium. I mean, obviously, North Korea's economic situation at the time was totally different. Um, So there were a range of factors that influenced that decision. Kim Jong-un, I mean, I think there's very little that Japan and the United States can do here short of, you know, really kind of making either a very credible threat of kinetic action or actually undertaking some kind of military action, which I think would be a terrible idea to actually get North Korea to stand down from these kinds of launches. I mean, last year in August, just a year ago, they splashed down a nodong in Japan's exclusive economic zone after years of not doing so. Um, And that led to multiple flight tests of um, ballistic missiles that kept landing in Japan's economic zone, um, exclusive economic zone. And I worry that um, if the reaction from Tokyo is what we've seen already out of Chief Cabinet Secretary Yoshihide Suga, which is that this is a grave and unprecedented act and we will react appropriately, I mean, those are, at the end of the day, going to be insufficient to, to deter North Korea from future tests. I mean, the That's benefits right. that they gain from this are enormous, not only technical, but they also... Um, can use this for coercive bargaining with the United States. I think that's the big lesson we took away from their Guam statement saga. So I worry that we're, you know, we're entering this 
new era where Kim Jong-un is going to start regularly overflying Japan. And hey, I mean, maybe that means that we start seeing if all that money we've been sinking into missile defense starts paying dividends. Um, but like we said, there are credibility problem there, so, uh, credibility problems there. Um, okay, so I think that's all I have to say for now. I'm going to go back and take a look if there's any new data. But Scott, do you have any thoughts to close us out? Nope, that's it for me. Unless the data's changing, that's, that's I think, what, we, what we're going to get tonight. All right. Well, thanks for joining me for this Hot Take Pod. Yeah, thanks for having me on. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so for listeners, if you'd like listening to Scott, uh, he is the producer of the Arms Control Wong podcast, which he does with Jeffrey Lewis and Aaron Stein. Um, I recommend checking that out if you like super granular discussions about ballistic missiles, nonproliferation, and arms control more broadly. Um, but if you are a subscriber to this podcast, that's great. You should really leave us a review. And if you're not a subscriber, uh, you should subscribe and you should leave us a review so you can keep up with future episodes. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.